Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right. Happy Friday weekend to you. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. We've seen an awful lot of panderous posturing. Say that five times fast. First thing on a Friday morning. Say first thing on a Friday morning five times fast. First thing on a Friday. Anyway, we've seen a lot of panderous posturing within the Georgia General Assembly the last few days. I mean, it's seemingly an annual rite of passage, but nonetheless, it's on steroids this year. The expansion of the cash bail system, which sees a lot of misdemeanors added to the list of arrests necessitating cash bail. We've seen the creation, and and I don't know who is asking for it, of a gun purchase sales tax holiday that was postured to be a pro-hunting measure in October, give them that, but not exclusive to just hunting rifles and shotguns and ammunition, but just about anything that is gun-related. Panderous. Uh, Yesterday, Michelle Baruchman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that the Georgia Senate voted to pass a bill that would challenge the ability of new labor unions to form in the state. I'm sorry. Why, Why is that for them to do? What gives the Georgia General Assembly, let me correct myself, the GOP within the Georgia General Assembly, the right to believe that they should be able to dictate to employees of a business or an industry whether or not those employees can collectively bargain for better wages, incentives, benefits, work conditions. I fail to understand how this is even legal. I also fail to see how it makes a whole lot of sense from a political standpoint when, and this is according to Gallup, you know, the survey people, more Americans see unions getting stronger and want it that way. This story from August of just last year. Labor unions continue to enjoy high support in the U.S. with 67% of Americans, two-thirds, approving of them, similar to the elevated level seen in recent years after more than a decade of rising support. Mirroring this trend, Americans have gradually become more likely than a decade ago to want unions' influence to strengthen and to believe Unions benefit various aspects of business and the economy. Now, you don't think this might correlate with the fact that there are those within employee unions who say that the Biden presidency has been the most successful presidency in modern time for union memberships. Don't believe me? A statement released last spring by Lee Saunders 
president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the AFSCME, said, and I quote, at every turn, speaking of Joe Biden, he has prioritized working people and delivered major investments in our communities. Saying President Joe Biden is the most pro-union, pro-worker president of our lifetimes. Hands down, no contest. He not only understands the importance of supporting working people, but he is a trade unionist at heart. He believes in the power of collective bargaining. He believes that everyone who wants to exercise their freedom to organize should do so without interference. And he has not been shy about doing so. Lee Saunders continued saying last spring, Joe Biden saved millions of public service jobs in states, cities, towns, and schools through the American Rescue Plan, revitalizing the economy and demonstrating his respect for public service workers. He signed a historic bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is creating good union jobs and building a greener future. And he ended last year with other huge legislative accomplishments, lowering prescription drug costs and making sure billionaires finally start paying their fair share in taxes. But get this, the GOP-led measure in Georgia doesn't just attack union rights, they attack businesses that recognize unions. Back to Michelle Baruchman's piece in the AJC. Businesses that voluntarily recognize unions through a check of signed union cards rather than a secret ballot election would not have access to state economic development incentives under Senate Bill 362, which was approved in a 31-23 vote, mostly along party lines. State Senator Mike Hodge is a Brunswick Republican and one of Governor Brian Kemp's floor leaders said workers can still form a union so long as they vote through a secret ballot election. That, he said, would prevent organizers from trying to, quote, coerce, intimidate, or harass employees publicly into joining. Governor Brian Kemp voiced support for the idea last month in his annual State of the State address. It would also prevent access, this bill would, to economic incentives such as tax credits for jobs on large projects and access to grants for businesses that provide labor unions their workers' contact information, even though that is a provision under the National Labor Relations Act. Supporters of the proposal say the bill would not preempt federal law or impact current agreements that unions have with employers. Employers could still choose to voluntarily recognize union, but unions, but they would not be eligible for the incentives. State Senator Hodges, by the way, mentioned that his father was a member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW, and that he would not have carried the bill if it, quote, in any way, shape, or form is injurious to unions or union members. Baruchman continues, however, because secret ballot elections take longer to conduct, critics of the legislation said employers would have more time to intimidate workers against voting in support of a union through required employee meetings, where employers often deter union membership. I want you to hear the floor speech that Senator Donzella James from Atlanta gave on this bill. Thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate you allowing me again to speak from my seat. But I rise today as a lifelong union member. Union. I lost my job, my late husband lost his job, along with 16,000 plus 
other air traffic controllers in the nation. And it was all started over <clears throat> the other uh, party across the aisle wanting to bust the union that fought for our rights. So I have the experience to explain union elections today because I don't think that everyone here is on the same page. After leaving FAA, going to uh, the U.S. Postal Service and joining a union there, federal union that I'm still a retired member of, and also the Atlanta Public Schools when I did work there for 11 years. That was a union member. So I have the experience, like I said, to explain union elections today because I don't think everyone here really understands what this bill is asking to do. Clearly. Union elections are not like our elections, in the uh, political elections. So if a group of employees in a company are not being treated fairly, they want to elect a representative to bargain with their employer. They first have to organize before they can even mobilize and do anything to help themselves. So doing this for phase, union organizers and employees of the company have an open dialogue about their rights to join or not join a union. Employees that want union representation sign union authorization cards, though no one is obligated to do so. So when organizers collect a majority of the authorization cards, they present them to the employer. And from here, the employer has two options, voluntary recognition or petitioning to the NLRB for a secret ballot election. Voluntary recognition is beneficial for unions because it allows the union to begin negotiating immediately. So secret ballot elections may take months to conduct and employers often use intimidation tactics to prevent their employees, employers from authorizing their, their, their unions. Mm -hmm. Excuse my bad voice, y'all. Currently, employers spend over $400 million per year on union avoidance consultants who specialize in using captive audience meetings to deter union memberships. Employers call these high-paid consultants persuaders and they play a key role in secret ballot elections. When what amazes me is that the other party, majority party, don't understand why the union reps don't like this bill. They can't understand why a secret ballot election would harm Georgia's workforce. They must not, must not understand how this law works and they have and have proposed will work, nor what effect it will have on individual hardworking Georgians 
who want to and have a right to make their voices heard. So union reps advocate for fair wages and safe working conditions. They make sure that the interests of workers are fairly represented. So this bill rewards business owners who make it more difficult for hardworking Georgians to speak up for themselves. Yes, this bill isn't for hardworking Georgians. You didn't do this for them. It's for the ones who have the governor on speed dial. The first step in union organizing is collecting these union authorization cards. During this phase, union organizers and employees of the company have an open dialogue about their rights to join or not join a union. Employees that want union representation sign union authorization forms and these organizers collect a majority and give it to the employer. And as I said earlier, that it's um, the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board, um, for, is, is, not, is against this. Voluntary recognition is beneficial for unions because it allows the union to begin negotiating immediately and secret ballot elections may take months. Through our history, there have been countless examples of employers using captive audience meetings to intimidate employees. And I'm going to end by saying voluntary recognition allows the union to avoid this intimidation and go straight to the negotiating table. So this bill will cost taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. So please vote no on SB 362. Let's go back to the table and find something that we need to pass. As my grandmother used to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So what's wrong with the way it's happening now? Thank you, Mr. President. I yield the will. Senator Donzella James from Atlanta speaking on yesterday's passage, well, before yesterday's passage, of a bill, a bill solution looking for a problem that doesn't exist, as she so eloquently pointed out towards the end there. Adding burdensome impediments for labor unions to come into existence in the state of Georgia. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, and a happy weekend to you. So there's a term in real estate, and actually it applies to other industries as well. I happen to be a residential realtor, so it comes to mind right away. Buyer beware. Caveat emptor, right? And I'm going to read straight from uh, goodgeorgialawyer.com. The rule in Georgia is caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. A common law doctrine which serves as the general rule regarding the purchase of realty. If a home has mold, termites, rotten roof, or any other defect, it is the buyer's responsibility to fully investigate this prior to buying the home. In general, the buyer is put on warning and notice that they are responsible to discover such defects. And if they discover them after the real estate transaction, unfortunately, 
it is a case of too little too late. The same can be applied to those who have moved alongside or opened businesses alongside the Atlanta Beltline. If you weren't aware when you purchased a townhome, a condo, a home, or opened a business along the Beltline, that rail expansion was coming and was in the Beltline's initial blueprint, in its DNA from day one, if you weren't aware of that, caveat emptor. Buyer beware. Too little too late if you wish to grouse about that now. I mention that all the time when I run into or dialogue online socially with folks who are just adamantly opposed to rail expansion along the Beltline. I, first of all, don't understand what the problem is. These are not going to be high-speed freight trains <laughs> railing through the green space and along the Beltline Trail. I don't know if anyone's even ventured downtown to just meander alongside the current streetcar route in downtown Atlanta, which I readily admit is pretty useless because it wasn't intended to be highly useful. It was intended to be shown for its effectiveness. And it is. It's effective if you need it. I've used it on occasion. It just doesn't go anywhere that convenient for me. I mean, I'll take it to Centennial Olympic Park sometimes when I need to go a couple blocks to a football game, a concert, basketball game, something like that at State Farm or Mercedes-Benz. But it's quiet. In the summer, it's air-conditioned. In the winter, it's heated. It's climate-controlled. It keeps you from the elements. It meanders by quietly. So I've really been curious about the opposition to it, and I don't, I don't pretend to think otherwise when someone protests the rail expansion along the Beltline. It's important. Atlanta needs multimodal methods of transportation. So uh, this story dropped mm, this morning, around 7 o'clock. Sarah Gregory, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reporting recent opposition has not prompted any significant reconsideration of plans to add light rail along the Beltline, according to MARTA leaders. Well, thank goodness. We need it. Transit has been envisioned as part of the eventual 22-mile loop since the Beltline's inception. She writes, and no other form of transit meets the needs as well as light rail. That according to senior transportation engineer Sean Green. He says this at Atlanta Beltline's virtual quarterly meeting last night. Sarah writes, the group is open to feedback about what rail on the Beltline looks like, but whether there's rail at all is not really up for the debate, Sean Green said. Quoting him, we're listening for constructive feedback opposed to just saying no. That's not really something we can react to. As Gregory reports, opposition to rail has intensified in recent months as construction on the trail has neared completion and the transit plans have come into greater focus. A new community group launched last fall questioning, quote, the wisdom of rail on the Beltline. That group released a poll of 600 Atlanta voters, 53% of whom said rail would destroy the park. Destroy? 
the park? Gregory goes on, the group emerged as MARTA has moved forward on plans to extend the Atlanta streetcar from downtown east to the Beltline. MARTA's board of directors hired a contractor to design the plan last summer, work that is underway. Streetcar service on the Beltline is expected to be up and running by 2028. And I caution you, I know 2028 sounds like a long way off, and it'll probably be late. What <laughs> what public work project isn't late, right? But twenty twenty eight that's it's less than four years, or it's it's about four years, right? It'll it'll go by in a blink, kids. Uh, Gregory goes on alongside Marta Streetcar Design Work. The Beltline is using two point eight million dollars in federal grants and seven hundred thousand dollars of its own money to help study how transit could fit into the northwest section of the trail, essentially between. The Bankhead and Lindbergh MARTA stations. Ooh, connectivity. Sexy. Unlike the eastern portion of the trail, there's no pre-existing rail corridor on the western side to guide where transit might go. The ultimate goal, Sean Green said, is to create, quote, as green a corridor as we can manage. For the streetcar expansion, Atlanta is looking to cities in France that currently have light rail running through public parks. We know it can be done, Green said. Sarah Gregory continues, while the design plan is still in the works, it's expected to be completed by the design by mid-2025. Green even went on to reassure those who are opposed to the light rail for, I don't know, aesthetic reasons. He's letting them know that they can expect trees and shrubs would exist between the trail and the light rail tracks to create both a physical and physiological barrier. The Beltline and Mart officials are exploring how the trains could run on a grass track without any overhead wires, unlike the current streetcar. That would be cool, right? By the way, if you're listening from outside Atlanta and you're just unaware what the streetcar path would even look like, just come into town sometime, walk the Beltline, You'll, you'll see that there's already unused, almost, I wouldn't say ditch because it's not subterranean, but there's, unused, there's an unused alley beside the Beltline that's just growing brackish shrub and other natural greenery that's just going to be cleared with, I, I like the grass, the grass rail idea, that's fantastic. It's, it's not going to eat into where the Beltline already exists, where people are already using it. Uh, I'll include that article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Back after this, the Ron Show on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Call or text the Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, here we approach Super Bowl Sunday, Chiefs 49ers. No, I think this is a good match. I mean, it's kind of a pick em. Both have their pros and their cons. Uh, only the Kansas City Chiefs, however, have Taylor Swift. And Taylor has really created something of a social, sociological movement where more young women are watching football. It's also created this quirky reaction on the right, this disdain for Taylor Swift. And here to talk with me about it, my good friend, sociologist, Dr. Matt Wilkinson from Coastal Carolina University. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I actually reached out to you because I was just 
just kind of enjoying how you're in having a little bit of fun on uh, your own personal Facebook page, uh, enjoying the just the insanity that is the anti-Taylor Swift uh, phenomenon that has just reared its head uh, lately. And I said, I got to get this guy on. We have to talk about let's Let's talk about something that's kind of lighthearted. This is really kind of silly stuff, isn't it? It is. It's silly stuff, but I think some of the more serious stuff kind of um, comes through in the silly stuff. But I think that at face value, it's kind of so ridiculous and entertaining that it's fun to talk about, which is why I've kind of been having some uh, some fun with it myself. Also, as a, as a now happy to say a Taylor Swift fan, <laughs> I feel like I need to, to jump in. Uh, was, wasn't at first, but uh, became one after listening to, I forgot what it was, Folklore maybe, where she's just chilling with her songwriters playing in a, um, you know, on a farm somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So I thought, okay, I want to, I want to chime in on this. I think it's pretty interesting that we have two iconic Tennessee female musicians who are beloved by everyone left of center. And in Dolly's case, a lot of people right of center too, who just appreciate the fact that she's Dolly Parton, but they're both pretty progressive women just not very right. politically active, and yet they're still loathed. This this is uh, this this makes me think of Laura Ingraham telling LeBron James to just dribble and play. Well, Taylor Swift and Dolly Parton literally almost do nothing but entertain, and yet in Taylor Swift's case, because she's front and center and somehow impeding on our sports ball uh, TV viewing, she's she's getting all the outrage. Is this political? Is it sociological? What is it? It's actually, you know, I don't know what percentage of each category, but I think it's definitely both. Um, you know, the, the sociological part of it is that, uh, you know, boys in our society, especially in U.S. society, are, are socialized essentially with one rule, don't wear pink. And pink is, you know, kind of a stand-in for anything feminine. So uh, Taylor Swift is obviously as an enormous fan base. I don't know what the percentage of women, but you see shots of her her tours and it's all of these women in sync having fun moving to the music together it's joy it's celebratory mm-hmm. and so for it should just be boys but it's also grown men they see that as pink i don't like it that's how we show mm-hmm. that we're men real men in our society um i can't remember exactly who it was i should have looked it up before the the call but uh the the, the quote is masculinity is just the relentless repudiation of the feminine. So we're going to go against anything that's seen as feminine. So that's Taylor Swift. It's uh, getting an education. It's doing well in school. Uh It's uh, wearing seatbelts. It was, we saw it with COVID, right? I'm not going to get the vaccine because that's weak. I'm not going to wear masks. And so it's, um, it's almost like these men, some of these men go on autopilot and in order to, to set themselves up as masculine, they avoid these things that are coded as feminine, often to their own um, threats to their own health and safety. And so I kind of like that perspective because it's a little bit more innocent than the political part, Mm. which is, oh, she's against Trump or she's against conservatives, therefore I hate her. And that's why she's getting death threats. So I think it's both sociological and it's political. Yeah, it seems to just kind of be coupling at the same time. But to get back to the sports thing, like I grew up, and again, I'm a, I'm a gay male, so it didn't really register with me, but I grew up when all the boys I went to school with had posters of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. They were on TV a lot more, you know, seconds per right. broadcast than Taylor Swift has ever been. 
And yet, exactly. Why? Why is that? Why is the reaction so different now? And see, that captures the real difference, though, right? Is that those women, the cheerleaders, are there to serve the men. They are there for explicitly for entertaining the fans. They are dressed for the male gaze. And Taylor Swift is not performing for the approval of men. She's performing for her fans. She is not trying to dance a certain way, wear her hair a certain way for men or for the male gaze. So some of these men will just, I don't get it. I don't find her attractive. She doesn't quote, do it for me. Mm. And that means that she does not have value to them because she's not seeking their attention. And you know, I need to obviously say not, obviously not all men. Mm. Um, but you would, you would think that real quote, real men in our society could get to a space where they're comfortable saying, I don't get it. I just don't like her music anyway. Let's get back to the game, you know, as opposed to having such a strong reaction. That's what really caught my eye is it's such a strong reaction to a super popular pop star. If you don't like the music, okay, not everything's for you. Right. Just let it go. There's yeah. lots of music I don't like, but I don't like rage against it because it's not threatening to me and my identity. So I think that's what's really worth exploring. We're on the phone with uh, Dr. Matt Wilkinson, sociologist, professor at a Coastal Carolina University. That's how he and I know each other. We, we ran some similar circles when I lived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So I, I feel like there's this opportunity that's getting quashed, too. Like, this is an amazing opportunity. First of all, marketers, sports marketers would tell you that about 45% of the fannies in the seats at stadiums belong to women. But there's also now this opportunity for dads who like to watch football to watch football with their daughters who may not have been interested before, but are totally interested now because one of their pop icons, Taylor Swift is interested in football too, because she happens to be dating the tight end for the Kansas city chiefs. But the political part seems to be poisoning this opportunity. Am I reading this right? Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, men, some men I think do see, Taylor Swift being there is kind of invading our masculine space. This is our safe space where we can watch football and be men. Mm. But as you pointed out, what was it? 45% of the fans are women. Mm. This is a chance to bring more fans into it. Um, you know, what, what is it about not having women present that allows you to have a safe space? You mm. know, we don't need these women invading our space. So you don't want your daughter to watch football with you. You know, you don't want to hang out with your daughter or your, your wife or your sister, you know, why does it need to be a solely male space? And it's not, as you pointed out, but I think that there's that threat that this, um, this kind of men's club and this men's hobby and this sport is being invaded by, uh, by women. Um, yeah. And I can't help but wonder this, this is the thing that, that you know, the, the, the whole feminist in me here, uh, wonders if this has something to do with, uh, dads seeing their daughter watching the game and seeing a powerful, celebrated successful woman doing her thing and choosing to be there, not having to, but choosing to be there as opposed yes. to the subservient female who was on the sideline, either as the sideline reporter, or as I mentioned before in the skimpy outfit, you know, uh, brandishing pom-poms. Yes. She is there because she wants to be, she is there because she has taken an interest in football. And I heard someone say, she doesn't even know anything about football. Why is she there? And I propose surveying, you know, 80,000 people at a college football game and seeing what percentage of them fully understand the game. A oh, lot of God. us go just to be with the crowd for the music, for the tailgating yeah, food, yeah. for the emotion, for the electricity. You don't have to have a, 
PhD in football to enjoy the game and she's learning the game and she's cheering on her boyfriend. Oh, um, God, you know, yeah. they, they're this, they're this, like the, the support that runs and the, the love that runs between the two of them is also something that's amazing. Why shouldn't we celebrate that sort of commitment and support? Um, you know, they're both killing it in their respective occupations and, um, you know, I just, I, I love seeing the pictures of them together. It's like, we need more of that, like hope and joy mm. front and center. Mm. And so I think, and to come back to the beginning of, it, I think that's why it's silly is, you know, is this, is this a new type of hater? You're going to hate against that sort of love and that sort of commitment. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Well, and I can't help but point out that the, 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 the party from a political point of view, and you don't have to speak to this, but I will, the, the, the family values people, the moral, moral majority, et cetera, and so on. Here we have a, a couple that seems to very much love each other and be committed to each other's successes enough. I mean, he's gone and, and appeared on tour stops for her, and she's gone to, as we know, several football games this season for him. They, they get along with each other. They love each other. They're not, uh, they're not part of the NFL's recent issues of, you know, bad relationships yes. and domestic violence and things like that. This should, this should be something yes. that we as a society uphold and, and, and adore. Yes. That's the contradiction, right? She is not merely a prop for him. And I think that makes some men very uncomfortable. Oh. Um, she, she would be fine without him. And if they go their separate ways, she will probably write, write an amazing album. Mm. She'll be fine without him. She doesn't rely on him. And I think that's threatening to some men, but for the rest of the country and maybe the world who see this as these are two very powerful people who are very skilled at what they do, who are lifting each other up and supporting each other. That's like, that's such a great model for how relationships should be. I think, um, this really does challenge some norms, too, though, because I was sitting here thinking about it. Do you think that Travis Kelsey gets ribbed in the locker room? Hey, it's Mr. Taylor Swift. Uh, but, you know, we have a we have a, a, a female vice president, which means we don't have a second lady. We have a second gentleman. It, it yeah. just it just brings up all kinds of, you know, atypical norms that it seems to to be rattling some folks. Yeah, and he's, you know, I have not watched football ever since the Saints and Titans started not being great teams, and I moved to South Carolina, so I, I knew a little bit about who he was, but he is certainly very competent in his masculinity, and, you know, aside from her, like his celebrations on the field, the way he moves and dances, he is very comfortable and confident, so I'm pretty sure he can handle all of those criticisms, as you want to call me Mr. Taylor Swift, that's fine, I'm dating her and she's amazing. He's not threatened by those attacks, but there might be some good-natured locker room humor as opposed to the other type of locker room humor aimed at him. But also, I guarantee you, his teammates see that he's happy. And if he's happy, that's probably affecting his uh, his mood and his performance uh, on the field. You know, he is in a, a happy, committed, loving relationship. And I think that true teammates and true friends will celebrate that, even if there's some teasing about her, you know, being worth <laughs> a lot more than he is. Certainly interesting to watch this all play out. And, you know, as we led, led the segment, uh, the last segment, we talked about, uh, you know, a district attorney here in Fulton County, Georgia, who had been uh, apparently having a relationship, an affair with uh, someone who is now in the process of divorce. And so that's that's the ugly side of politics that we don't necessarily want or, or even sought to see from a personal point of view. But over on this side, we've got something happy going on. And yet, either way, you've got folks that just cannot be happy with it. Yes. And that, and that's the part that is 
away from earlier, I said it's entertaining. That's the part that makes me deeply sad and concerned is that there are people who are perturbed by this and they're irritated instead of saying, I can assume what her politics are and they don't match mine, but seeing love and happiness and commitment and joy, that's a good thing that we need more of. Right. But if it doesn't fit into their box, then suddenly it doesn't just turn into that's not for me. It turns into hate. It turns into attack. Right. It turns into at the extreme level, death threats. I saw that, you know, she's had this exponential rise in death threats since <sighs> certain folks started targeting her. The basket of deplorables, I call them. So, you know, and, and I liken this to like like I know what Kelsey Grammer's political leanings are. And yet I was happy that Frazier got a reboot. I didn't really care for the product, but I was happy that the show got a reboot. Right. Can, can we just enjoy yep. this for what it is and try and keep things in their lanes without people getting all butthurt about political views? Yeah, yeah. You know, show some support. It, do, it doesn't cost anything to either be totally quiet. What was the thing? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah, you know? yeah. Not, not for me. I'll just uh, wait until the camera pans back to the, the sports ball, you know, but what? it's, it's so, it's so, I mean, not to, not to make light of the word, but it's so triggering for some of these people. It really like is. I saw it's like 40 seconds per three and a half hour football game. She's on screen. <laughs> I think you know, it's not interfering with the action. Yeah. It's just a crowd shot and they're irritated by her just existing. Yeah. I think the crab cakes that they, you know, have B-roll footage of during the Baltimore-Kansas City game actually got more airtime than Taylor Swift did. And you didn't hear anybody who may be yeah. anti-Pascatarian go, how dare they show crab cakes? It is an affront. Yeah, yeah but vegetarians are like, I will never watch the NFL again because crab cakes appeared for 40 seconds. Right. Right. What do you make of the fact that there are warnings now from like Sean Hannity and uh, Donald Trump, et cetera, and so on, right wing media, to, for her not to step in and endorse Joe Biden? You know, I don't know who is advising, well, anyone on the left or the right, but especially the political right right now, because if I was on an advising team or some sort of think tank, I would be saying, do not mention her, yes. do not attack her. And ignore it, because by doing that, you're already kind of pushing the button to get her fans to turn against you. We've seen this. We, yeah. Every every battle someone's picked with her, her fans rally around her. Oh, yeah. This isn't just a few fans, right? Mm -hmm. She has this <laughs> probably just one of the army. biggest followings of any musician. Yep. So why would you devote airtime or speeches, you know, to uh, to attack her when she hasn't supported? You know, the other guy, maybe she will, maybe she won't. But, you know, if she takes a stand on being uh, pro-LGBTQ or, you know, women's rights or women's, you know, right to fair pay, and they go after her, it's only going to more deeply solidify support for the other side. So yeah. I'm, I'm baffled. That is bad politics to try to go after her. I, I would, don't get I it. I was just going to say, when in an era when the Dobbs decision has been so far removed now that it may have kind of stunted the wound just a little bit, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. sting nearly as much. Don't don't piss off women now with you know this going after arguably the the most famous woman on the planet right now. Yeah, don't mobilize Ugh. that vote. You know, do do what you will, but it does seem like pretty self-inflicted uh, wound there to be so hyper-fixated on her and warning her not to uh, to endorse. I mean, can she can she have a political opinion? Right? Is, is she not allowed to say that she supports 
you know, her LGBTQ fans and mm. friends and family. Mm. You know, you need to be quiet about that because you have too much power. Are they suppressing her right to free speech? I just, I don't get it. I don't think it's a good move, but we'll see how it plays out. I don't disagree. Dr. Matt Wilkinson, sociologist, thank you so much for giving us some time and having a little lighthearted reflection on all things Taylor Swift here on The Ron Show today. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Final segment of The Ron Show for the week, and I thank you for listening. New time slot, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com. Or not the new time slot if you listen via podcast whenever you decide to listen. Hey, we appreciate that. Also, the show replays 5 to 6 p.m., so if that's when you've been listening, hey, you still get to. And we've had like two shows this week where <laughs> we've had uh, breaking news in the middle of the day and I've had to scramble back into a studio and update so that when it airs 5 to 6 p.m. it doesn't sound so outdated. And I, I did this schedule change to, to make my work life a little bit easier. And for the most part, it has. But those two days of breaking news. Come on, man. Uh, let's see. We had some news yesterday that dropped, uh, I think, after? Was it after? Yeah, pretty much after the show had been put in the bag and wrapped up special counsel uh, investigating Joe Biden's handling of classified documents basically said, eh, yeah, he had a document. He acknowledged it. He gave it back. No big deal. However, it was the characterization that the special prosecutor, a Republican that the department of justice attorney general Merrick Garland sought to head this Special counsel. I mean, hey, an effort of bipartisanship. Hey, we're going to have a Republican investigate our president on his handling of classified documents just to show that we're on the up and up. I, that's how you do it, right? And yet, even then, the special prosecutor, instead of being just simply magnanimous or making a simple one-page statement, a la the investigation into Mike Pence, which was just as innocuous, by the way, the special prosecutor decided to take some pot shots at President Joe Biden. Let's go to the BBC for the story. Let's head to the United States now, where President Joe Biden has angrily rejected suggestions that he has a poor memory and is unfit for office. He was responding to a long-awaited report which concluded he shouldn't face any criminal charges for mishandling classified documents during his time as vice president, but questioned his ability to remember several important events. Our North America correspondent, Will Vernon, reports. Tonight, no criminal charges for President Biden. No criminal charges. Tonight, no charges, but the special counsel... The initial headlines seemed to be good news for the president. The special counsel recommended no charges be brought into his handling of official documents. A legal win for Mr. Biden. But politically, it was a devastating blow. The report made several claims over Mr. Biden's mental competency. It described him as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. In any future trial, it said, it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him of a crime that requires a <laughs> mental state of willfulness. Oh my God. Last night, President Biden hit back at those allegations. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. But Joe Biden has made a series of embarrassing slip-ups that have raised questions about his fitness for office. At a recent event, he said the current president of France was Mitterrand, who died in 1996. And I sat down and I said, America's back. 
and meet Iran from Germany, I mean from France. Donald Trump, who is just three years younger than his rival, has also been accused of being too old for office. I'll tell you what, I feel sharper now than I did 20 years ago. I really do. I don't know. It's probably not true. It's probably not true. And I think anybody running for president should take an aptitude or a cognitive test. Mr. Biden will now be hoping allegations of wrongdoing over official documents will come to an end. But questions about his age and fitness for office are more difficult to avoid. Will Vernon, BBC News, Washington. So, I mean, it's just kind of goofy. Donald Trump said he either couldn't remember, couldn't recall, or couldn't recollect 36 times when being asked questions about events during his campaign. That in written responses to special counsel Robert Mueller. In the Trump University lawsuit deposition, he said he didn't remember 35 times. In the E. Jean Carroll case, he confused E. Jean Carroll with his ex-wife Marla Maples. Couldn't even remember if he had an affair with her. He's mentioned running against Obama at campaign stops. That Jeb Bush got us into Iraq. Nikki Haley in charge of security on January 6th. Marjorie Taylor Greene went under oath. Oh, my God. Listen to this. When Marjorie Taylor Greene was called to testify, listen to this. I, I don't recall tweeting that, no. Okay. I don't remember. That's a difficult to answer. Okay. Would you- I just don't remember who tweeted what. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. Okay. I don't recall saying all of this, but... I don't remember who organized it. Okay. I don't know if I retweeted it. Well, if you look carefully, it says Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's an American flag, and it says retweeted. I don't know if I retweeted it. You don't don't recall one way or the other? I don't recall. Mm -hmm. This paper has... I don't have this Twitter account anymore. So I don't recall... I don't remember retweeting this. Okay. but I don't remember, but that's what this says. Okay. I don't recall. I do not recall that, no. I do not recall ever talking about attending. Mm-hmm. Were any of them? I do not remember. Just a low blow by the special counsel. A clearly partisan swipe. And we're all susceptible to forgetting things when we're under oath, apparently. I had to look up when it was that my mother actually passed because it's been 13 years ago. Anyway, that's going to do it for The Ron Show. Back here Monday, 9 to 10 a.m. On the American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com. Show notes at RonShowATL.com. Have a good weekend.